0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Wardard and Jennifer McQueen. here. Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, we got a jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, You know, the world events are going on uh, as they are, and um, we'll bring you updates as soon as uh, we can at the top and bottom hours. Uh, Obviously, uh, still trying to get aid into the Gaza Strip and to help people who are most in need. The Prime Minister is in Brampton uh, trying to stay away from... uh, (laughs) Trying kind to of stay away from all the crisis uh, by dealing with the housing crisis and talking about things up there, and you know it, it's it's funny because uh, they got a new comms team in there and they're trying to just keep hammering away at stuff that, of course, they should have been doing eight years ago. And and the prime minister, who's usually got that smile on his face and that twinkle in his eye, he kind of looks like a, a circus bear that's being led around from uh, housing announcement to housing announcement uh, and, and not very happy. Uh, but uh, it's no one considering uh, the situation that he's in. Many are are a little um, uh, upset because he hasn't provided more clarity on the Israeli Hamas issue, but he already put his foot in his mouth once in regard to this issue by accusing Israel before all the facts were in. And you might remember the whole situation with India. So uh, it's better that he keeps his mouth closed and his foot out of it. Uh, and again, you know, he's he's a prime minister that plays both sides of the street, and he wonders why the contest is or the country rather is divided, and blames others for it. So it's 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 fascinating to see the change of tone. And unfortunately, it takes uh, the world in crisis uh, for people to realize that. All right, uh, we got a jam packed show coming up. As you know, especially on Fridays, we love to do this every so often when it gets a little too hectic. Down here on Earth, we head off into space, and Dr. Paul Delaney is going to be uh, joining us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science uh, from York University. And there's going to be a pretty cool media shower. Mind you, uh, we got some cloud in the sky, so I'm not sure how much of it we'll be uh, able to see. We're going to uh, talk to him about that coming up in a little bit. Also, John vest is going to be joining us, publisher of the Bay Observer. Interesting uh, opinion piece. Environmental spending needs the same rigorous scrutiny as other public spending does, and, you know, I, I've said this for an awfully long time and I remember seeing it back in the days of the McGuinty government because Canadians are so sensitive to the to the environment. We all want to help. We don't want to burn the planet up. And, and we are doing, you know, uh, quite a good job considering we have one of the cleanest grids here in Ontario. So uh, but at the same hand, when you st- when you scream that the sky is falling and if you pay more money, we'll fix that. Um, Canadians start handing out money. And it's, it was obvious through, for me, through the McGuinty and wind governments that this was just becoming a revenue stream. There wasn't really anything going into, uh, saving the environment when we uh, expose, uh, the, when we expose the atmosphere to our 1.5% greenhouse gas emissions that we do every year. Like there was no real, real result. There was no real, bang for the buck here and now with uh you know carbon taxes going through the roof people are really starting to question uh of course we're concerned about the environment but are we doing the right thing and uh it's amazing that uh we can just start writing checks for the environment and we're really not necessarily uh concerned of where the money is going we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also the big mom show not mom show mom show and It's not a Mother's Day thing. Although there are a lot of there are a lot of moms that go, grandmoms too. Uh, the mom show, which is a huge event uh in Hamilton every year and uh happening at the uh Gage Park Greenhouses. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh also this is pretty cool as we get closer to Halloween, uh the stories in the stones, a free Hamilton Cemetery Tour. And I and you know, like one day I'm gonna do this. Because, as you know, we have Hamilton uh, Hammerhead trivia every afternoon, as just after the five o'clock news. And Hamilton is so rich in history; like it is one of the oldest cities here in Canada. So, and the cemeteries uh, are, are proof of that. And there is a tremendous amount of history there. So, uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on this hour, as well as uh, we get ready for Halloween. Uh, so, Charlebois is going to talk to us about uh, food and inflation. And, you know, the price is leveling off now, but he said it's much more than that, that uh, the food industry has to win the trust back of the Canadian people. We'll talk to uh, him about that coming up a little later on. Also, Brian J. Karam is going to be joining us, our White House reporter. Well, it's not ours. He's (laughs) We we can't afford a White House reporter, but he does help us out and give us his uh, opinion. It talks about uh, what is going on uh, in the United States with Biden and support of Israel and Ukraine, uh, asking for a tremendous amount of money in order to keep uh, peace in the valley, per se. Also, Canada on the world stage, as uh, we wrap up the week, we'll talk about uh, that with Charles Burton and exactly uh, where he thinks we are at this point in time. So uh, that and housing prices in Hamilton. Is Hamilton losing talent because families... I just can't afford to live here anymore. We'll talk about that all coming up throughout the course of the show. All right, look up. Well, I might (laughs) be... I Maybe mean, today's like it's daytime for one thing, and it's a bit cloudy. But whenever it gets a little tense here on Earth, we always like to look up into space. Amateur astronomers across Ontario will be watching the night sky this weekend. Media showers reaching their peak, parts of Halley's Comet. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to be with you. So this is an annual event. It comes around every year. Is that accurate? Absolutely. The Orion meteor shower, and as you indicated, it's debris left over from Comet Halley. So for those of us who mightn't be able to wait till 2061 when Halley comes back, this is your next best chance to see pieces of that comet. What will that look
0: like? Not that—that's <laughs> quite a ways away. But if you were to imagine, what do you think it would look like, Paul?
2: Well, the debris. I don't. Will... I don't
0: think either one of us are going
2: to be here. But you know, no, what do you think? No, no. I, I've got it on my that, my calendar, but I'm not holding my breath. No. So tonight, or every year in October, pieces of the comet that have been stripped away during its passage close to the sun sort of uh, line up as a big rubble train in space, and then the Earth's orbit crosses it in and around October 20th every year. And that means that literally these small particles, and we are talking small grain size, uh, if we've got a, a baseball size, that's really huge. That stuff streams into our atmosphere, gets heated up by the atmosphere, atmospheric friction, and creates a shooting star, what we call a meteor across the night sky. And depending on, you know, how late at night you're looking and the quality of the sky, it really can be quite a spectacular display, a really nice natural fireworks display, if you will. When was the last time Halley's Comet was here or we could see it? Uh, February of 86. And I can proudly say that I was south of the border watching it intently. What did that look like? It was actually quite amazing. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of hype and everybody was expecting this brilliant light show. It wasn't that good a show, unfortunately, in 1986. But nonetheless, for those of us who were in dark skies, it was clearly evident in the night sky. You could perceptibly see a, a, a tail. that... Uh, behind it it was a it, it gave off a very soft blue glow and then when you mm. have binoculars or a telescope, it really you know, sprang to life a very bright central nucleus and as I said this uh, long tail behind it that gave off this blue glow. it was really quite impressive. And
0: where is it now?
2: Uh, <laughs> a long way from home it's out beyond yeah. the orbit of neptune uh, it's almost as far from the sun as it can be in fact by the end of this year it will have uh, looped past what we call aphelion, and it will begin its long trek back to the inner solar system arriving here in the summer of 2061
0: what will it look like when it get back when it gets back won't it be much smaller or will it be
2: Oh, no, no. In fact, uh, the 2061 is a much better showing because of the proximity of the Earth to the comet as it swings mm-hmm. into the inner solar system. Last time, we weren't all that close, and that's what gave rise to the, the relatively poor show. 2061, it will be much closer, and so your, your kids, your grandkids will be able to see a much brighter object in the sky, certainly for us here in Canada. It was much better in the Southern Hemisphere in 2086. That's flipped this time around. So you're looking Mm. for a comet that will rival, if you think back, to the days of Hale-Bopp and Hayakitake in the mid-1990s. That's what you can expect.
0: So we are heading through the trail of this right now. What can we see this weekend? Uh, providing, you know, it's obviously a little cloudy around southern yeah, Ontario, but yeah, if that's it was Yeah, exactly
2: right. Yeah, it's really one of those annoying things about being in astronomy. You've got to have clear skies. But if you can stay up after midnight, tomorrow night, Saturday night, after the moon has gone down and you've got a reasonably good east to southeast horizon from there up the zenith point straight above you then get nice and comfy this is not a a quick thing uh get nice and comfortable stay nice and warm get fully dark adapted and you will see these shooting stars now the the, uh the the um orionid meteors are very quick they hit our atmosphere at better than 60 kilometers a second so literally these will be Mm. short sharp streaks of light at peak around about 20 meteors per hour so that'll occur around about three four o'clock sunday morning so the later you can stay up saturday night the better the show will be and three planets and the milky way visible possibly Uh, well good luck on the milky way in hamilton or Toronto. however the, the bright planets venus Uh, In the morning sky and uh, Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky, absolutely, they add to the festivity. The Milky Way is unfortunately always drowned out by light pollution in our cities. Mm. If you're in the country, absolutely, the squash of stars, which which represents our galaxy, is always a good sight. But you need a dark sky for that, Scott
0: all right make sure you find something comfortable and warm and gather around saturday night you're going to see a show in the sky paul delaney with us, professor emeritus faculty of science department of physics and astronomy york university paul as always thanks for the time be well
2: this guys, scott <laughs>
0: writing in the Bay Observer John best uh, suggests that environmental spending needs the same rigorous scrutiny as other public spending in the city of Hamilton and why wouldn't it uh, because it's green you get free rain uh, is this about viewing current projects through a green lens or creating green projects and do they have value let's bring in John best publisher of the Bay Observer and with us now John thanks for the time hope you're doing well
3: yeah I am nice to be with you Scott so what are your
0: thoughts on, on what the objective is of the new Office of Climate Change Initiatives? Is it, like I said, looking at projects and then, you know, tweaking them with a green lens, or is it about something completely different?
3: Well, I, I think it is uh, looking at things and tweaking them with a green lens. Uh, part of their mandate is to um, eventually get all the departments in the city looking at various projects. With a, with a green lens. So, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they've advised uh, already includes, uh, for instance, they were talking about um, a device that will allow fire trucks when they're on the scene that they don't have to idle. It's like an auxiliary power unit, I, I presume, perhaps from solar power. So the idea is to kind of, they're there to spread the green message throughout the, the entire organization. And uh, I I don't see anything wrong with that. No. My concern was just the way the the uh, the whole issue was presented. They um, they presented uh, they they're given uh, two and a half million dollars a year. That's just a blanket uh, capital budget. And uh, what I was a little concerned about was the fact that uh, they didn't seem to have to provide the same kind of evidence and build up uh, for spending the money. So they 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 told council yesterday that one of the things they wanted to do was purchase uh, seven hundred and fifty e-bikes, the battery powered bikes mm-hmm. uh, at a cost of um no, it's a thousand, I guess, at at a cost of seventy five hundred bucks per bike. And mm-hmm. th- that was a heavy number, but it was it did also include. Maintenance and and hiring a third party to manage the system, but still, it's seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And basically, the the reason for doing it was, uh, you know, we we passed a, a green, um, you know, some kind of a green program a year and a half ago that said we we need to encourage more more use of e vehicles. That that didn't seem like there was any measurement or any you know it wasn't a program that looked like it had been costed out in the in sense of how do you how do you measure success with the program it was going to be a 3 year pilot and and a couple of counselors objected to it and and you almost felt like they were getting beaten up for daring to question something mm. that happened to be environmental
0: You know, it's funny. I remember having this discussion back in uh, the days of the McGinty and Wynne government. And we all know Canadians are incredibly conscious of the planet and want to do the right thing and such. And it seems whenever you say you're doing something to, quote, save the planet, yeah, they'll start handing you money, though whatever you want, whatever you need. And then it kind of became obvious that it was just a revenue generator and that, you know, if you attach a green label to it, yeah, what the heck, whether it's, you know, a value for the taxpayers are actually making a difference or not. So, I mean, as you said, with the city and, and all the, uh, you know, all the different uh, arms and legs of, of the departments and such, I'm sure that there's, uh, you know, common sense efficiencies that can be made that will cut down on on our footprint and this sort of thing. But, you know, that's one thing as opposed to uh, starting a project which may not prove fruitful or really doesn't have any value for the taxpayer.
3: Well, you know, we don't know who's going to be riding these bikes. are they are they going to be uh, perhaps something that would help uh, lower income people or can anybody jump on them? Um, you know, I did a little a little bit of research just before uh, I came on with you. and for instance, we could give 550 people a year's worth of free bus passes for mm. for that kind of money and that might help some lower income people uh, get to work a little more. Uh, efficiently. Uh, that's just that's just one thought. But the, my my main objection uh, to the whole thing was the way those counselors who questioned the thing were treated. They were <clears> scolded, <throat> and and I guess the other piece is I didn't see any kind of, you know, these. Uh, this is an environmental department. They're very good with data. They're very good with making cases. But there really wasn't any kind of a a case or how how a business plan. Go? Yeah, no business business plan plan. at all, just a list of things that we want to do. Do you feel that this department is getting the same scrutiny as others? Well, no, and that was the point of my story. And no, it's a brand new department. And I I guess the reason, one of the reasons I I wrote the article was I I don't think we should get in the habit. We've, We've created this new Office of Environmental Initiatives. They should be treated exactly the same way all other departments are treated when it comes to justifying their expenditures. And this idea that we just put a green sort of halo on it and, and we don't ask questions and that and we uh, shame on us for even thinking of asking a question. I just didn't like the way it was getting started. And uh, hopefully uh, there'll, be, there'll be more information provided in the future when these things are being considered
0: uh obviously cities have a duty to provide services for their city for their taxpayers that's the objective of of having a city government and such and obviously anything we can do uh to keep that greener is going to be an advantage to everybody do you get the feeling that rather than that it's sort of going off on its own with pet projects per se like the e-bikes
3: well, I, I don't want to be, a, a, you know, I don't want to be critical in a blanket sense, but I, I sure zoomed in on on this one, as did um, a couple of members of the committee, uh, mm-hmm. because it, it did kind of jump off the page. Uh, certainly, uh, 7,500 bucks for a bike that costs, I believe, around 3,500 to purchase. Uh, you know, that, you know, there, there wasn't even an explanation of how we got to that number. There may have been an explanation somewhere, but it wasn't in what was in front of council yesterday. So somebody uh, that was new to the game would take a look at that and, and you know, wonder about the expenditure. I, I just think that, uh, you know, everybody's concerned about the environment. We We've got weather that we've never seen before. So I'm not trying to fight that battle, but no no uh, we got to be business like uh, as as business like as as that council is capable of being and uh, you know there's there's a process in place for uh, asking for money for expenditures and everybody seems to be able to follow it and uh, i i think this department uh, hopefully will be doing that as well do you get the feeling that this office uh well is the do you
0: think this office is qualified from a, a city planning a business I mean just the nuts and bolts of running a city do you think they have have that scrutiny as opposed to just well let's just find all the the green projects we can have do you are they un, are the understanding of how this process works Uh
3: well uh Based on what I saw yesterday, I would say they thought it was going to be easier than it was, and mm-hmm. and the way uh, things ended, it's possible that that one line item, the the e bikes, uh, may go in front of may be pulled out of that package. The other thing I objected to was was the mayor uh, said, uh, you know, this this organization uh, gets an annual um, allotment of of two point five million dollars. And uh, the the sense was that um, that they can spend it on anything they want, and and so she described the e-bike thing as as having been pre-approved, when in hmm. fact it looked like uh, these counselors were seeing it for the first time yesterday. And and I don't know of another department where they're just handed money, and 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 say that that pre-approves you to spend it in any way you like. You still see very detailed requests for expenditures. Uh, for every single department in the city. And that's one of the reasons why the agendas are so big. So, you know, I I just saw what looked like um, a bad precedent getting started. I don't want to, you know, be uh, too critical. I I certainly don't want to criticize the existence of the department. But Mm -hmm. I I just think um, the checks and
0: balances have to be in place.
3: Yeah, let's 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 nip this in the bud.
0: John Bess with us, publisher of the Bay Observer, and uh, suggesting the environmental spending needs the same rigorous scrutiny in the city as other public spending. John, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. It's the time of the year. It's starting to uh, get cool. Uh, Obviously, the colors are beautiful if you get out and about. And, you know, there's something that uh, a lot of Hamiltonians don't even realize we have, and that's the Gage Park Greenhouse, which has been around forever. And employees of the city's horticultural department have been working uh, tirelessly uh, to plan this year's MUM show at Gage Park Greenhouse. The theme of the show this week, uh, which opens this weekend, is Medieval Times, and it runs October 20th through October 29th, and it's open daily from nine until 7 p.m. to talk more about all of this. Robin Pollard with us, manager of forestry and horticultural, uh, horticulture, city of Hamilton in here now. Robin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: I'm well, Scott. How are you?
0: So far, so good. Robin, are people aware that the city has a uh, forestry and horticultural department and explain why?
4: I hope that they're aware. Um, so the forestry and horticulture department, we've got uh, under under our portfolio, we've got all the city trees, we've got all the trees and parks and cemeteries. We have all those beautiful uh, traffic islands that you see the beautiful hanging baskets that you see uh, when you get into the BIA areas throughout the city. We've got all sorts of planters. Um, that's all our work.
0: And and all of that comes out of this greenhouse, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, everything that uh, that you see in those traffic islands, uh, many of the baskets, all the planters, that material we grow. So we've got staff that work all year round. Um, they're taking cuttings. They're they're growing out from plugs. They're growing from seed. They're doing all sorts of stuff to grow into those uh, grow those uh, plants out in the greenhouse.
0: It's its own nursery, really.
4: It really is. Yep, yeah, yeah. We have absolute nursery city staff. They're they're phenomenal at what they do and. This show is something that we uh, we put on so that they can showcase that skill.
0: And why the mom show? Explain the history.
4: I wish that I was around in 1920 to give you the full history of the way back when. (laughs) But uh, I I don't know if I'm if I'm uh, able to go all the way, but it did start in in 1920 um, and it has run for over 100 years. Um, and each year it's a it's a new theme. So it's something to showcase a beautiful flower, something that has many, many varieties and many, many uses. So um, I, I'm sure that somebody has a great story on why it started, but unfortunately, I don't.
0: Uh, so if people have never been to, uh, to this before and they show up, what are they going to see?
4: Oh, well, they're going to be blown away. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. If you've never seen it, you have to go. We take the production greenhouses, which is about 20,000 square feet of growing space. So it's a big, large greenhouse and we have filled it with floral displays and we, we it, it all comes from the theme. So we take that theme of medieval mums and we create massive displays. We've got, um, there's drawbridges, there's a medieval village. Um, there's a scavenger hunt for kids. We've got a cafe area. Um, and all of it, you're surrounded by mums as well as some of the other plants that are in there. But mums are the focus.
0: So this runs until October 29th. Then what happens? What do you do? How, what, what happens after the show is over?
4: And we get ready for next year. So um, hmm. we start to clean out the greenhouse. We uh, we decide what, the, um, what we need for next year. Next year's theme is going to be Candyland. So we take cuttings from the mums and we grow those out for next year's show. So it's a, it's a cyclical project um, that's been going on for 100 years. And it's all based on what that theme is. So this year, the theme being medieval mums, we went for really fall colors. We've got lots of oranges and reds and yellows. And next year with Candyland, I can just imagine that the colors we're gonna need, we're gonna need lots of pinks and purples and that sort of stuff. So we'll, uh, we'll start taking cuttings and fill the greenhouse back up with mums and, and grow them out for next year.
0: This is literally a twelve month year operation. Like many may think that oh, you know, it only works during the summer months, but this is continuous, ongoing, isn't it?
4: This never stops. Yeah.
0: Robin Pollard with us, manager of for- uh, manager of forestry and horticulture, city of Hamilton. The Mum Show on at the Gage Park greenhouse. Check it out. It starts today through October twenty ninth, and it runs daily from nine a.m. to seven p.m. Robin, thanks for the time. Good luck with it this year.
4: Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. If Scott Thompson
0: isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
4: delve into the issue until he
0: is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, when I first came to Hamilton, I was thinking about this. I was mean, like, I wasn't that long ago. It was like 30 years ago. <laughs> So, Yeah. Uh, Where did that go? And what what amazed me about Hamilton was just the history of uh, over and above the beautiful people, of course, was just the tremendous history and architecture that's around the city. Um, I remember somebody telling me there's only a couple of real historic cities in Canada. I should say a few. And uh, certainly Hamilton is one of them, one of the main uh, historic cities in this country. And this is fascinating. And again, we do Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news and I, I delve into this every so often because there, uh, because life has been here for so long well, certainly on Canadian terms uh, the, the, the cemeteries are just filled with history and the stories in the stones Free Hamilton Cemetery Tours this isn't just one this goes on all through the uh, from say spring to fall hosted by Robin McGee are educational and beautiful this weekend, October 21 is the Past Mayor's Tour uh, future events include the war of 1812 the veterans tour for remembrance day uh and it's really easy you just meet at 777 uh york boulevard where the cemetery is and you dress warm and um and off you go and this is all about the history of this great city let's introduce you to tour guide for hamilton cemetery tours robin mcgee and here now robin thanks for the time hope you're well
5: oh thank you very much scott
0: how did you get into this robin
5: um years ago i uh, like you were talking about years ago uh, I went to Mac and became a, a historian. I got a BA uh, and uh, decided what to do with it. And so I went into television. And nothing <laughs> had to do with <laughs> history. So, so uh, when I was uh, through the the, the uh, idea of having uh, history as a uh, career, uh, I got back into a great idea I came up with 22 years ago, and that was to bring people into the Hamilton Cemetery and teach them their local history uh, by the dead guys that actually uh, did the history uh, and left a legacy for us today in Hamilton. And uh, I honor all of the people that are there uh, for uh, what they did for us in their lifetime.
0: This isn't a one-stop tour either, Robin, is it? This goes on from May to June. There's very, sorry, May to November. This is various themes.
5: And I go right to uh, November. And uh, each uh, tour is a theme. um, And I have 12 separate themes. And, uh, yeah, uh, come on out and and, uh, learn your history. Uh, This uh, weekend is the uh, past mayor's tour. And not too many people are interested in the mayor's. I usually do that uh, during the election, and uh, <laughs> uh, but my my subtitle of that is uh, who are these guys and what did they do to us? Do do leave for Hamilton, and mm-hmm. so it's a cross reference of non political politics that created our history in Hamilton, and it, it it involves all sorts of things: the American Civil War. Uh, uh, the the riot act, all sorts of things uh, that uh, these people uh, were involved in at the time and left us the legacy that we have today.
0: What is the oldest grave in that
5: cemetery? Uh, It goes back to about uh, 1850, and it is unmarked. And um, uh, we know kind of where the location is. Uh, The um, uh, cemetery started uh, in the 1850s. There are mm-hmm. three cemeteries, Church of Ascension and Christchurch uh, Cathedral. Uh, they amalgamated in the 1890s and became the Hamilton Cemetery.
0: And uh, I don't know, I, this sort of feels like an inappropriate question, but who would be um, uh, the most famous uh, resident there?
5: Uh, George Hamilton, the founder of yeah. the city of Hamilton.
0: Founder, yeah.
5: And, and uh, that is a history mystery because... Uh, he died in 1836 before the cemetery actually existed. So how did he get there?
0: It wasn't, though, there are other cemeteries, Robin, and then that yes, became right. the main one, and they actually uh, moved it to there. Is that they accurate?
5: Moved him. Uh, Ham- uh, George yeah. Hamilton had his own family cemetery, and that's where he was buried when he yeah. passed in 1836. And because of the Jolly Cut uh, being expanded in the 1850s, right. uh, this hmm. city moved uh, the cemetery. Uh,
0: so uh, do people realize uh, how historic the city is or uh, how much of that history lies within that, that cemetery?
5: Um, I, I like to say that it still has legs after 22 years. People yeah. are still coming out uh, as a, a novice and saying, what's this all about? And uh, uh, at the same time, I call them groupies. And they come out on every every tour to uh, support me, and uh, they they say I learn something new every time, Robin. I I
0: could see that. So, what's the most asked question? What are people the most curious about?
5: Oh, that's a that's a difficult one because it, it it's all over the map when it comes yeah. to questions. Um, uh, the one I like uh, the, the most is uh, uh, George Hamilton. How did he get there? Yeah.
0: Uh, considering, obviously, the dates, the difference in dates in the cemetery not opening until 850.
5: I tell the history of the cemetery, I tell the history of George, and then I throw it out there as to, how did he get here? (laughs) How did you come up with all the different categories? Uh,
0: Or is just the cemetery that big, there's that many stories to be told?
5: Yeah, there were so many uh, uh, aspects and and individuals that did things uh, with other people that connected them uh, you know, with the idea of a theme. Um, obviously, ones like uh, uh, the War of 1812, that's an easy, uh, you know, themed th- uh, idea. The Mayor's Tour is another theme thing. That, that's pretty obvious. There's, you know, only so many of them. Um, the one that really came uh, out that I'm really proud of uh, finding all this information is the American Civil War veterans. Hmm. they were Canadians, and they went to a war in uh, uh, 1861 to 65 in America, and I have found three black men in the Hamilton Cemetery that did that. Hmm. And I'm very, very proud of that.
0: Robin McGee with us, tour guide for Hamilton Cemetery Tours. Uh, You can find out more at hamiltonhistory.ca. And this goes from spring right to fall. Uh, This one, October 21st, this uh, Saturday, uh, which is the Past Mayor's Tour. Very, very interesting. Robin, thanks for the time. Good luck.
5: Not a problem, man. Anytime.
0: Don't go away. We're coming right back.
5: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from
0: 900 CHML. All right, we've been chatting a lot about uh grocery prices, when we're talking about the affordable affordability discussion in general groceries, uh obviously seem to uh to head the list. And we have seen some uh, seen a little relief uh over the uh, last little while. That being said, I remember we did so last year uh when it was just a normal trend for prices to level out between uh, the fall season, and the holiday season. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois has penned an article. It's in Sun Media. Lower food inflation rate alone won't help food industry uh, and the tris- the trust crisis that they have. Uh, what more can grocers do, or what can grocers do, to win your trust back? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and here now. Sylvain, thanks for the time.
6: Hope you're doing well very well it is friday of course How about yes you? and
0: and i'm doing well thanks and you're at home and you're like you know you're a busy guy these days lots of people chatting about f- uh, food i see you on tons of media uh the prices have stabilized but i remember talking to you about this last year and normally that happens this time of the year as they hold prices going into the holiday season is that what this is or is this the pressure from the government and the scolding the public scolding of the ceos that we saw a while ago
6: uh well uh inviting CEOs to Ottawa uh was an interesting exercise i was actually part of it personally uh i mean i never i never would have believed that i would see uh CEOs of the big 5 in the same room at the same time so that's that's an accomplishment uh but beyond that i mean even before the meeting we all knew uh, things uh, would get better. Uh, things are calming down. Things are improving. Uh, the CPI report this week confirmed that the food inflation rate will continue, has continued to drop. Uh, the gap between inflation and food inflation has narrowed to 2.1%. We're expecting. That gap to be at zero, I guess, uh, by February, January or February or so. So we're on the right path. Uh, many products are actually cheaper than a month ago, like coffee, tomatoes, potatoes, breakfast cereals, uh, cucumbers, um, uh, pork. So there's, there's, there are, there are really positive signs out there. I know a lot of people are still struggling, but uh, I I think the worst is really behind us. Despite what happens with Ottawa or what Ottawa decides to do, we're, we're on the right path here.
0: So why are we seeing some relief, Sylvain?
6: Well, first of all, uh, Ukraine's uh, invasion uh, is uh, well. It happened in February of 2022. That's a long time ago. So we were able to, we 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 have absorbed that shock. Uh, mm-hmm. We're we're we've recovered essentially, and and manufacturers have recovered. Uh, they're not paying the same amount. Uh, of money uh, for their inputs than, say, last year. A bushel of wheat was at $13 US for a while. That is that is incredibly high. Now it's down to about $6 US, so a much different picture there. Uh, there are some exceptions like cocoa, orange juice, beef. I mean, those, those commodities are still pretty high, but everything else is much lower, much easier to manufacture. Costs are down, and for distribution, of course, uh, things are much more, uh, pl- well, they're much more manageable, if you will.
0: Uh, many say the only thing the government can really do is create more competition, add more players into the system. Is that as easy as it sounds? Uh, do, uh, how do we get more cooks in the kitchen?
6: Well, it's, it's, it's a virtue, right? Everyone wants more competition. How do you achieve that? Uh, I mean, I do believe that we need to Tackle this issue very seriously. We can't really help uh, consumers overnight with this one. This is about making Canada a more attractive place to invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk to companies like Little or Aldi, and both have been in the United States for a while, they're not looking at Canada because of costs. Uh, distributing food is very costly in Canada. We have 10 different provinces with interprovincial barriers. That would need to be addressed. And of course, as you know, that's certainly very complicated. So there's, and of course, our fiscal regime is not easy. And I'm referring to uh, carbon pricing, uh, certainly not an attractive thing. But the other thing is, I mean, the, the players we have here in Canada really are are defending their territory quite well. So we saw, talk to Target. Target came into the market back in 2014 and left I think it was nine Hmm. months later. So it's a tough market to get in because of the cost. And you have to understand, uh, you have to know what you're doing, basically.
0: It's interesting when you started talking about uh, an attractive place to do business, to try to draw companies in to do it. That could have been for almost any industry, not just food.
6: Oh, no, exactly. And so I think everyone wants competition. And even when food inflation is at zero, people still want more competition. That's really the key here is how do you actually make Canada a more attractive place? And and I think that the one sector that is really under a lot of pressure right now is manufacturing. I mean, Mm -hmm. food manufacturing is the largest manufacturing sector in Ontario. And uh, if you talk to manufacturers, costs have gone way up. Uh, they have to deal with new packaging rules. They have to deal with higher wages. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to compete uh, in manufacturing these days. So certainly, if you look at that segment, you can increase uh, our agri-foods uh, competitive uh, spirit and make sure that consumers have more choice. And of course, by doing that, you get lower prices.
0: Why don't grocers do more to tell their side of the story? Or are they just land low and stand under the radar?
6: <laughs> when what we've seen over the last two years are politicians politicizing the issue of food inflation, and yeah. and when that happens, everything is highly simplified. It's all about mm. blaming one person, and so grocers have actually been attacked. Uh, really vilified, really, on social media everywhere, uh, we've blamed them with zero data. If you look at the data, grocers aren't the problem. I think the problem really revolves around our marketplace, uh, yeah. how competitive it is, how, how not competitive it is. And uh, and so those are the things that we need to address. And, and the other thing, of course, is that we are taxed a lot yeah. at the grocery store, 4,600 Different food products are taxed at the grocery store right now, so it adds an extra layer as you exit the grocery store, and nobody really sees that, but that money doesn't go – that billion dollars a year doesn't go to the grocery store. It goes to Ottawa.
0: Mm. Uh, something completely different here but a new story in the last 24 hours or so lots of issue around plastics and food and trying to reduce the amount of plastic in food production and and sale and such uh is you know when you think of when i think of of plastic waste i think of places like amazon and whatever uh yeah. whereas food you need that how, what are the alternatives how is this going to affect the price of food and and again what is the alternative because it's 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 about spoiling it's about keeping the food fresh and such how do you what's the alternative here
6: it's it's a great question. I, I think I think everyone should be concerned about E Triple C's stance on this uh, environment, uh, climate change, Canada. We've actually met with them a couple of times, and uh, and they're pretty pretty focused on P two and and frankly, P two is all about asking grocers to ask vendors to reduce the use of plastics, especially. Uh, in produce. But the reality is that we import a lot of produce from elsewhere, farmers in California and Arizona aren't necessarily interested in making exceptions to service a small market like Canada. So we need to be careful with what we wish for here because at the end of the day, we could actually eliminate suppliers and of course, reduce competition. And when that happens, well, prices go up.
0: Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, professor of food distribution and policy, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, uh, talking about not just lower food inflation won't help the industry, got to get the trust back. Sylvain, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. We've got a a tremendous amount of turmoil in the world. uh, Started way back when with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Since then, lots of other uh, issues popping up. The most recent Hamas invasion of Israel and the fallout of that. Uh, U.S. President Biden showing up there a couple of days ago and, and setting the record straight where the U.S. stands in all of this and is asking Congress for more money in order to help with the situation and the conflict in the world. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author. White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN and is here now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Prior to uh, Hamas attacking Israel, uh, the U.S. was questioning how much they spend on Ukraine and where this was all going. How does now this latest conflict, uh, how does that change the the dynamic?
1: Well, for the world, it changes a lot of things. For the Republicans in the House of Representatives, it doesn't mean anything because they can't govern. and so. You've got uh, look. Let's paint a picture here. You got the president of the United States who's been not to one, but to two active war zones, being criticized and being called weak by the Republicans who've never been to any war zone. And um, it's it, it all of it behind all of this is you know the hand of Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's it it's the United States having to stand up. And it was last night the president of the United States saying in prime time. That we still are and have to be, you know, the adult in the room and the and the, mm. the, the torch and the light for the rest of the world. And um, God love him for saying it. And, <laughs> you know, you got to look the next day what happens in Congress and you go, uh, can we stand up and, and do the job we're supposed to do if we can't even find, you know, enough adults in the Republican Party to elect a speaker? So How that's ma- where we're at.
0: How much of the stuff around the speaker and and the charade that's happened there, how much is this affecting uh, U.S. policy and this discussion?
1: Well, it doesn't affect U.S. policy. The president went out and acted like an adult on the international geopolitical uh, stage last night after coming back from. Now, you can argue about some, you know, the the Republicans are mad because he wants to give money to innocent Palestinians, calling them all Hamas, Mm. which is nuts. And then you've got uh, people who want to condemn Israel, which is nuts. And Netanyahu kind of went nuts when he, you know, there's people who say he overreached and overreacted, which was to be expected. But our policy has never been more firm from the president. What we've got to do in the next few weeks is to find a path forward in the Republican-dominated House of Representatives in order to enact legislation and to keep our government open. And that is no small thing, because come November 17th, uh, the whole thing shuts down again, unless we find someone who can find that path forward. And the GOP is so divided among themselves. It's almost on one hand, if it weren't so serious, it's almost funny to see. It's like Keystone mm-hmm. Cops. Yeah. I mean, I'm standing in the house yesterday, talking to members of the house, and uh, you can hear me at each other. And one of them said, "You know, if we have to go back, and and let me paint another picture for you, Scott. This is taking place is a room off the speaker's office, big room. It hasn't been cleaned in days. There are uh, members of the house sitting there with stale coffee, cigar butts, cigarettes, old pizza boxes. It smells like." you know sweat flop sweat at that and it hasn't been clean and it smells like you know flatulence and they're all sitting around yelling at each other that's the gop
0: is this a turning point for the u.s and the free world again we know america is is freedom's guardian free, freedom's uh, lifeguard per se is this a turning point in the sense that what is happening in the world will force everybody to get their act together because we need you
1: well, that would be nice. Gotta hope so. Uh, I mean, but look, it's the president who's himself. This is part of his standard stump speech over the last three years. We are at an inflection point, and we yeah. are. We have to support Israel. We have to support Ukraine. Vladimir Putin himself said that if we didn't support Ukraine, it would be his within a week. We can't let support of Israel down. But at the same point in time, You know, being the light and torch for uh, equal rights, we have to treat everybody equally. And that's not something the nuance of the of the political scene on the uh, geopolitical international geopolitical scale is unfathomable to a to the members of the GOP who, you know, like to engage in pornographic activity when they go to the theater at night. So, you know, that you've got a problem with common sense. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, the, the, the better minds will prevail.
0: Where is the speaker debate going? What what's this what's the short term there?
1: <laughs> that's you, you know, that's excuse me, the sixty-four million dollar question. You know, they all went home. <laughs> they said they, they let's a sleep on it.
0: <laughs> they
1: took third vote today and said, How to hell with it? Go home and come back <laughs> on Monday. And that's that's where they're at. And there have been a couple of propositions about expanding the uh, speaker pro tem, uh, the appointed speaker Patrick McHenry. Um, and giving him more power so that the the House can do its bidding and do its work that it needs to do. There are others who are going to try and come back with Jim Jordan. There are still people who think that Donald Trump would be the speaker. Look, this is, without a doubt, the last cry and scream and choking and wailing and gnashing of the teeth of that particular weird portion of the GOP that calls itself MAGA. Hmm. This is Donald Trump pulling the, the strings here, and he's failed again. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and
0: political analyst for CNN, Life and Times at the White House. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be
1: well. You too, brother. Have a good weekend. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson.
1: On Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CXML.
0: All right, what a week it has been. Let's bring in Charles Burton, a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to speak with you. Uh, we're going to try to get as much as we can in a short period of time here. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, at the start of, uh, the Israeli and Hamas conflict, the premier, uh, got in trouble for uh, jumping the gun and blaming Israel for the hospital attack or assuming that Uh, U.S. president Biden there and said, the evidence suggests otherwise. Now people are saying that the prime minister is not being, uh, transparent enough and clear enough about what his position is considering what we've seen here and what we saw with India a couple of weeks ago is it better for him just to stay under the radar and don't
7: say anything well you know he said oh we're still looking into it uh, that sounds like a very political kind of statement designed to you know play at both sides of the street i mean the um the that was my next and- point is it,
0: it that's my next point charles is he is he riding both sides of this fence
7: Well, he shouldn't be. You you know, I'm inclined to think that it's extremely unlikely that the U.S. president in a televised address would out and out lie and say uh, that Israel didn't do it. Mm. And he knew that they didn't do it when it wasn't that case. But in the case of our prime minister, clearly, he's not going to say one way or other, you know, or at least I'd be very surprised if we hear from a week from now saying, oh, I finally figured it out. You know, he's trying to, to, uh, to appeal to two constituencies, but what we really ought to be doing is sticking with the truth. And if there is evidence in the Five Eyes is that Israel did not bomb that hospital, then the prime minister ought to retract his previous assertion that they did. Does playing both sides
0: of the street here just create more divisiveness? For me, it's less about Israelis versus Palestinians, religion, left versus right. It's it's freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism here. Can't we just say that?
7: Yeah, I mean, we should be using the word terrorist because that's what Hamas is. I mean, any group that blasts through the border and starts to rape and murder uh, young people at a music festival are terrorists. It's they're not militants. They're not uh, you know Palestinian uh, um, freedom fighters or anything like that. I mean they're terrorists, plain and simple. I think that the problem is that you know our prime minister doesn't have any credibility in global affairs because on the one hand. Canada doesn't have much skin in the game because we've cut our defense to the extent that we really don't have any hard power left. And on the other hand, as you say, he just doesn't uh, give us any confidence that when he's speaking of of international affairs, he's speaking with any authority. It's all very well to imply that the that the the head of the the government of India ordered a a mobland type hit on a Sikh um, activist here in Canada but if you're not prepared to provide us with any basis for why you're making that assertion and it leads to disaster in india expelling most of the canadian diplomats in that country then uh, you know you're looking weak uh, indecisive and not very competent so you know it does worry me because global affairs shouldn't be partisan they should be based on canadian interest and i think we need to take a strong stand and we mm-hmm. should be much more transparent about what's really going on and, and uh, you know, take the, the domestic political lumps that may come from that, from the diaspora communities that may be here in Canada. You know, we shouldn't be pandering to, to minorities, but acting in the overall interest of Canada as a sovereign nation in the world um
0: towards the india issue um recently in the news again because 41 diplomats uh the government says they pulled them out of there but is did they get pulled out or they lost immunity and would have been kicked out anyway
7: well i mean the indian government announced that these diplomats were going to be expelled and then um our government let the deadline go past by a week before um before we uh got them to pack their bags and get a plane out of there. So it was a very, very unusual situation where a government declares diplomats persona non grata and the country that, that uh, they come from refuses to accept that. So you know the prime minister is trying to make out that uh, India is violating international law. But in fact you know as a diplomat i can tell you that a country can expel diplomats without giving any reason whatsoever and under diplomatic protocol you have to accept that in in our case um you know it seems that we we delayed and it could have put our diplomats at risk because they had been declared persona non grata and were told to to leave the country by a certain date which was last week and we didn't you know they just stayed there uh, it just it uh, it's it's unbelievable. Frankly, I've never heard of any precedent for this kind of violation of the Vienna Convention, as as our government seems to be committing.
0: It seems if the government says anything, it puts the foot in the mouth and uh, one step forward, two steps back. What should the government be doing, considering there's the issue in Ukraine and Russia? And there's also now the situation with Israel, Israel and Hamas. I mean, there's a lot on the world plate right now. What should he be doing?
7: Well, I think that we need to have a clear policy of our defense. I mean, right? You know, the problem with Canada is that we're everywhere: we're Atlantic, we're Pacific, and yeah. we're Arctic. And I think what the international community wants us to do is up our game and at least get up to the minimum two percent for defense contributions. And I think where they really want us to defend is the North, which is, you know, our our yeah. our area. The other countries are not there uh, to to um, to share the burden. And so what we really need is to decide, okay, we have limited resources. Okay, it's going to take us you know, decades to catch up after after decades of underfunding. And so how do we make the best of a weak hand? And there doesn't seem to be any willingness to, to sit down and have that kind of frank discussion and tell the Canadian people exactly how Canada will defend our security and sovereignty and, and contribute to the maintenance of the international rules-based order against those horrendous threats to it by Iran, Russia, and China. Does the prime minister appear weak at this point? He doesn't seem to have the same spring in his
0: step. He looks lost. He looks confused.
7: I I would say so. I mean, on a lot of issues. But I think essentially the international community has got his number and he just doesn't have the, um, the prestige and charisma in multilateral fora that he might have had when he first came into power. You know, you're not going to get the president of Egypt, for example, responding well to a telephone call from Justin Trudeau as they might to other nations like Australia and the United Kingdom who you know are are making a proper contribution to the global order in, in a way that Canada isn't i think they're i think they're fed up with being preached to by a country that tries to exert soft power without any hard power of any commensurate basis to back it up
0: Canada's back.
7: Uh, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center
0: for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, What a week it has been in politics. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
7: You too. Take care. I hope you have a good weekend, and maybe we'll have a better week in international politics in Canada next week.
0: (laughs) We'll call you to find out. (laughs) Thank you, Charles. You know, I think uh, housing, groceries, affordability, uh, those have been the main issues, uh, kitchen table issues. Uh, that have been concerning Canadians for an awfully long time, uh, despite what our politicians say. And the Canadian or Canada's National Housing Agency says that Hamilton was off like 12 percent month to month in the seasonal adjusted uh, annualized rate of housing starts in September. We've heard housing starts have slowed down uh, just due to cost. Data from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation released Wednesday says the city checked in at just over 2,300 starts, down from 2678 recorded in August. The Smart Prosperity Institute report from last May, revisited by City Hall's Planning Committee Tuesday, submitted that the city is becoming less attractive to families and losing thousands annually to neighboring regions like Brantford and St. Catharines. To talk more about all of this, Jesse Helmer with us, Senior Research Associate with the Smart uh, Prosperity Institute, and here now. Jesse, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
8: Thanks very much. Yeah, great to be on.
0: So, Jesse, why are uh, why is the city becoming less attractive to families? We remember way back when it wasn't that long, the best place to raise a child, now less attractive to families, losing than, uh, thousands annual to uh, neighboring uh, regions. W- why is that? Why is it happening?
8: I think what we're seeing in the migration data in particular for Hamilton is that it's families with young children uh, who are either – you know they used to be coming to Hamilton, and now they're bypassing Hamilton, or they're in Hamilton. They're looking for more space for their family. They can't find what they're looking for at a price that they can afford, and so they're looking further afield in communities like uh, St. Catharines, Niagara, uh, Brantford, Norfolk County. Uh, so close by, but but not in Hamilton. And I think that we're seeing that phenomenon uh, intensifying uh, in Hamilton.
0: What type of homes are this for? Because is this more about families, people who want a backyard and some place for the kids to play?
8: Yeah, it's not necessarily about the yard, although I'm sure lots of people are looking for that, but it's the space within the housing unit. So one of the recommendations in the report is that regardless whether, you know, in Hamilton, you're building single family houses or townhouses or apartments, uh, they need to be large enough that families with kids can live in them. So three bedroom Hmm. Apartments, three bedroom townhouses, you know, that gives people enough room uh, to start out maybe as a, a married couple and then add one or two kids without having to buy a new place um, or a much, much larger place <clears throat> that they just can't afford. So I think when we're talking about what new housing needs to be built in Hamilton, it's, it's housing on two, two points. One is for those families who are looking for a little bit more space. And then there's housing for seniors who are, hmm. especially as they get into their 80s, mid 80s. Uh, They're not going to be driving as much. They're going to be looking for different kinds of housing uh, than they're probably in right now. And in our report, we point out that about a third of all the people who are one-person households, they live in single-detached housing in Hamilton.
0: Are we paying enough attention to the the specific needs that you're addressing here? Because all we keep hearing from politicians is affordable housing, affordable housing, to which my response is, what the heck is that? Because it doesn't matter, um, you know, what, what, what's uh, how much you make, what your socioeconomic level is. Nothing is affordable and really will anything be affordable, uh, you know, for like another 10 years until the supply increases drastically. Are we spending too much time talking about affordable housing and not really addressing as what that is or specifically the types of houses that we need?
8: Yeah, certainly, you know, one, one housing unit um, is you know, the single detached housing is not the same as a small, you know, 600 square foot apartment. And I do think we need Mm -hmm. to be thinking about what kind of housing people are looking for. Unfortunately, in the Hamilton market, um, the affordability issue for housing has gotten so bad that even, you know, couples who are making pretty good money, like we looked at a pipe fitter and a bus driver, you know, these are middle class jobs that pay above the median income in Hamilton. Even people who have jobs like that are having a hard time affording housing right now. If they're not already in the community, if they're looking for housing where they could have two kids easily in that housing, um, it's, it's too expensive for them. And they're much, much better off to be living in a place like Calgary or Montreal or Halifax. Now, some of these places are larger uh, than Hamilton, but they'd be much further ahead once you look at their income and the cost of housing uh, to live in those we- communities and do those same jobs. And I think that's really putting a lot of pressure on Hamilton. You know, you need carpenters. You need skilled tradespeople to build all this housing. Yeah. And if those very same people are being priced out of the market, it's making the labor market challenges that much more difficult. So it's kind of a double-edged sword.
0: How did this happen? Because we saw over the last few decades, while Hamilton was going through a rough time, I've been here roughly since uh, 1990-ish, um, and you saw places like Grimsby and Kitchener and St. Catharines, they, they exploded and Hamilton just kind of stayed where it was and didn't really grow. And then all of a sudden, as the population moved around the lake, obviously, uh, prices went up and, and, and we saw, uh, and, and this sort of thing. H- how do you avoid that? How do you go from, you know, everybody's picking everything around us to, and sort of bypass this is the place to be, and now we're at the same problem again.
8: Yeah, I think Hamilton, it's not all bad, you know, in the sense no. that Hamilton is still attracting a lot of young people, you know. So, people are coming for school, people are starting out their initial career. It's when they're looking to, you know, establish their own household, maybe start right. having kids. Uh, that's where I think Hamilton's starting to lose people, and Hamilton's still drawing huge numbers of people from. The Toronto metropolitan area, right? So there's lots of people coming from Toronto into Hamilton for the same reason people are leaving Hamilton and going to Brantford, right? It's it's right. slightly cheaper. Uh, they can make it out better in Hamilton, and so there's still a lot of people coming into the community. It's not all it's not all bad, but I think in terms of making it better, you know, we need to really be building a lot more housing. One of the points that we make in the report is that the provincial target, forty-seven thousand units over ten years, that should be seen as an absolute bare minimum. Because and, you know, since we, then, we, the federal government's increased immigration targets, right? You're seeing lots of more pressure for the population to be even higher than what was anticipated even a year ago. And so the real target needs to be higher than that.
0: We've heard both Hamilton and Burlington officials say, oh, yeah, we're meeting targets. We're uh, doing however many units a year. Where we we supposed to be? But clearly, that's not the case.
8: No, I think there's a ways to go. You know, there's a difference between approving units, right? And I think Hamilton City Council has been approving a lot of New potential units, and then there's the actual building, right? And like everybody else, you know, the people who actually build houses and apartment buildings. You know, they're suffering from the increases in right. interest rate, just along with consumers, right? So it's a very difficult thing. The Bank of Canada is trying to cool off the economy and especially the real estate market to get inflation under control. Right at the time where we need to be building a lot of housing, so it's a, it's a tough problem. It's not just a problem in Hamilton, but it's a problem all over in terms of adding housing supply uh, right now.
0: Uh we've talked about this many times uh nothing built for the last 5 10 15 20 years if you don't sooner or later you get a shortage have we learned anything from this uh you know once we get out of this crisis even moving forward what have we learned
8: uh i think we you know in hamilton there's been some peaks and valleys in terms of home building and i think one thing that all levels of government need to do is is start working together a bit more than what we might see a normal behavior of kind of pointing fingers at each other uh, on something mm-hmm. like this. So being coordinated about increases to the immigration target, being coordinated about what's the enrollment targets for post-secondary institutions. Right, that's part of the pressure that's coming the housing market in places like Hamilton and London University and college towns. Yeah, um, trying to coordinate with each other so that we don't. Have surprises, right? With things we could have could have anticipated, and then having some counter cyclical investment in public funded housing, right? So we don't have to build all the public housing at the exact same time. The, the private market is really really busy, but right. as it starts to cool off because of interest rates or other factors, that's when the public sector needs to step up and fund, you know, housing that's going to keep people employed, get the, those projects built, probably at a point where the cost would be a bit better too. Um, you know, having some a bit like a bit of a better plan for how we're going to actually build this housing. And I think people are learning. I like, got actually quite optimistic. Wow. Uh, there's tension on this issue like there has never been before uh, from all levels of government, from the public sector, from the private sector. Uh, I, I think if we actually put the egos aside and stop blaming each other, we probably can make some great progress over the next 10 years. <laughs>
0: A plan is a great idea, and Jesse, like again, I've said this many times, first time I can ever remember where all four political parties provincially in the last election said they wanted to build over a million homes. Man, if they had said that like uh, last election or the two or three before that, we wouldn't be here. Uh, It's bizarre how the opinion has changed. Jesse Helmer, with a senior research associate at the Smart Property Institute, talking about the housing situation in the hammer. Jesse, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen
5: to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at
0: 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
3: Well, Scott, completely unrelated to everything, I want to know, what is everyone's favorite jack-o'-lantern designs? Because I think I just made the best one. I carved a jack-o'-lantern in a jack-o'-lantern. It's freaking out the neighbors. I'm pretty sure I just won the neighborhood jack-o'-lantern contest. It was never called, but I won for sure.